Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. This podcast is part of the Darkness Collective. Visit darkness.org to discover more shows like this one. The Darkness Awaits. You're listening to the Wicked Library. <laughs> Warning! If you haven't figured out that the Wicked Library has strong themes of an adult, sometimes violent and decidedly scary nature, then by all means, keep listening. Go on, it's just that you're not going to complain about it. Oh, you can try, but you'll be scoffed at and ridiculed mercilessly by the host, the narrators, the producers, and you could bet your dangling participle me. Go ahead, try it. You're not going to like it one little bit, but our millions of listeners will eat it up. <laughs> and that's not hyperbole, kiddies. So there's your warning. Enjoy the show, kiddies. <laughs> And welcome to episode number 802 of the Wicked Library. As always, before we get started today, a big thank you to our Patreon supporters. Our patrons get a completely ad-free show and other great rewards. Plus, they help keep the show coming for all of you. A wicked amount of time and love goes into making the show, so your support lets us know you appreciate the effort. Thank you. Also, a big thank you to those who took the time to rate us five stars and write a short review of us on iTunes. Those reviews help others find the show, and we always enjoy reading how and why you listen to the show. It means a lot to know that the show means something to you. The Wicked Library is proud to have Booth Junkie as one of our Season 8 partners. Booth Junkie is a YouTube channel dedicated to the tech of at-home professional voiceover, created by the very talented Mike Delgadio. If you've ever been interested in getting into voiceover, seeing what goes into voice work, or just can't get enough of Mike's voice, it's a great channel to watch. You can find the channel by going to boothjunkie.com. And of course, don't forget that February is Women in Horror Month. There are so many women involved in the making of this show. The authors, the voice actors, musical composers, artists. The Wicked Library would not be possible without the work of these very dedicated and very talented women. So... Head on over to thewickedlibrary.com and check out all the ladies that are involved and please support their work. They do other stuff besides this show, you know. Today's episode features a story written by Meg Haftall in her first full-length episode. You may remember her name from one of our quarterly anthologies last season with her story, The Pit. Now, today's story, Willoughby, is actually part of a larger universe. There are several short stories written about it. And there's also a novel coming out, as you'll hear in our interview at the end of the show today. So if you enjoy today's story, there are plenty more stories written in that same twisted, weird universe to keep you entertained and terrified. Our storyteller today is Jessica McAvoy with Willoughby by Meg Haftall.
kiddies? You know who I am by now. Sit down and relax while you can. Your librarian has taken such good care of you for seven seasons. I see no need to lighten up for season eight. Hold on to your breath, kiddies. It might just be your last. Once again, it's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs> Willoughby by Meg Halfdahl Inside Willoughby Grocery, you will find everything you might need for a quick stop. You can purchase three flavors of spaghetti sauce and mint ice cream with little chocolate cows mixed in. You'll find batteries and whipped cream in a can, and you can even pick up Sudoku books and gum at the checkout. But everyone in Willoughby, Minnesota, knows not to shop here for more than a bagful. Instead, they get the kids strapped into the car, iPads in hand, and drive the 35 minutes to the Fergus Falls Superfoods. Willoughby Grocery is simply for the times you forgot the olives or the bread, or you couldn't wait another minute for a candy bar. Amanda knew that her family's store was an in-between, an overpriced convenience, a stop for either the forgetful or the lazy. She quite liked it this way, because it meant her nights at work were spent reading and dreaming. On this night, Amanda had a yellowed paperback, Stephen King's It, waiting on the counter while she dusted the cookie packages. Unlike the milk and diapers, the Oreos and vanilla wafers got rather dusty, Dylan's grandma's done. Riley Fisher appeared next to her in the aisle. Amanda tried not to look up at his face. His flirting had recently become more aggressive, and, in even more of a surprise, Amanda had been playing along. She had absolutely no intention of ever dating Riley, but she enjoyed their new banter until he had made a rather awkward pass at her while they were walking home from work. Since then, Amanda had resigned herself to nods and polite small talk. Concentrating on being cold to Riley had been exhausting. It took effort. Amanda felt more natural laughing at his bad jokes and touching his elbow while she told him a story. Yep. Amanda stared at the feather duster in her fingers and walked away from Riley. Mrs. Woodhouse stood at the register with a full basket. I'm sorry, Mrs. Woodhouse. I hope you aren't waiting long. Amanda gave the old woman a sincere smile. No, no. You work so hard, Mandy. Amanda laughed. I don't know about that. But you can tell my dad the next time you see him. She began to remove the collection of yogurts from the wire basket. Each yogurt had an individual orange price sticker. Amanda punched each digit into the register with careful consideration. She wished they had a fancy scan system, like Superfoods, that gave a satisfying beep for each item. Amanda typed in the codes for two red delicious apples and a bag of sweet corn. 
Amanda bagged Mrs. Woodhouse's purchases while the old woman struggled to get her checkbook out of her purse. Riley stood at the front of the store. He waited to walk Mrs. Woodhouse home. It was the aspect of his job he seemed to actually like the most. He carried plastic bags for the elderly citizens of Willoughby. Riley had told her how he enjoyed getting outside, breathing in the fresh air, and sometimes he even got tips. That's $11.42. A pen, dear? Amanda handed Mrs. Woodhouse a pen, noticing the yellow, crocheted checkbook cover she had seen hundreds of times before. Amanda was instantly bothered by the familiar object that Mrs. Woodhouse held in her creased hands. It was the wrong time. She had never seen that hideous strip of material at night. It's so late. You're never here this late. Amanda motioned toward the large window that looked out on downtown Willoughby. It was deep, black night, and there were only a few minutes left until close. The street was already dead. This was a farmer's town, after all. Oh, yes. Just wanted to make a run. I knew Riley would be here to walk me home. The old woman didn't look up from her checkbook. She wrote the date with a shaky hand. It's a good thing, too. Amanda nodded. It was still so odd. Mrs. Woodhouse, early riser, here at nearly ten at night. Amanda felt a surprising anxiety building in her belly. Something wrong was going to happen. Not exactly bad, but wrong. Her own grandmother the one still alive, was surely fast asleep now. She hadn't known an old woman, certainly not one as old and withered as Mrs. Woodhouse, to go out past dinner time. It was unfair, Amanda supposed, to assume anything. Maybe, after a quick stop to drop off her yogurt, Mrs. Woodhouse would be on her way to a Minneapolis dance club. She smiled at the thought. It made her feel better. It's a very good thing, the old woman repeated. She stopped writing in order to fish a tissue out of her cardigan pocket. She pressed it to her wrinkled nose and gave a rather impressive blow. Amanda looked automatically to Riley, widening her eyes to show her annoyance. He gave a toothy smile, his way of agreeing. She took notice of the flush in his cheeks and felt a sudden twinge of regret. She shouldn't have looked his way. He was already reading into her glance, hoping it meant she was ready to flirt and joke again. God, how was she going to be both nice and cold? It would all hopefully become easier next year in college. Mrs. Woodhouse put her used tissue back in her pocket and took up the pen. That monster is out there tonight. Sorry? Amanda felt as though she had been physically slapped back into the moment. The old woman sighed. She finished up her signature, which was just a mess of pointy lines and scraggly curves. Oh, the monster. He was out by the Heinz place, hiding behind that. You know that. Oh, that thing Dan Hines put in their front yard. You know, the... The bench swing? Riley grabbed the two plastic bags of food 
ready to deliver. Monster? Amanda squeaked. Doris Woodhouse smiled, revealing two rows of yellowed ancient teeth. Bench swing, yes. Dan Hines is such a show-off. He's going to put a koi pond in too, you know. Next summer, I think he said. Do you mean an animal? Riley's eyebrows knit together in confusion. Amanda appreciated his hesitant expression. She knew she had gone pale. Oh, oh no. He's not a fox or bear or anything like that. (laughs) Mrs. Woodhouse giggled as though the very idea was ridiculous. But you're a big boy, Riley. You'll protect me. She placed her knotted fingers on Riley's thin arm. He flinched at the old woman's touch. Amanda watched silently as Doris Woodhouse zipped up her enormous satchel bag and then shuffled across the linoleum toward Willoughby Grocery's front glass door. Riley followed with a brown plastic bag in each hand. He turned toward Amanda and shrugged. Good night, Mrs. Woodhouse. I'm sure Riley will keep you safe. (laughs) Amanda hoped to laugh casually, as though she was in on the joke, but an odd sound escaped, wooden and fake. Riley rushed ahead and pushed the door open. Mrs. Woodhouse raised her hand and gave a quivering wave. She shook, not from fright, but from the inevitable damage of time. The bell sounded as the door swung shut behind them. Riley Fisher and Doris Woodhouse were enveloped by night. The fluorescent store lights reflected on the front windows, making it impossible for Amanda to see the two figures heading down Main. Immediately, Amanda sensed a stifling loneliness. The Coca-Cola clock ticked like thunder above her head. It was six minutes to ten. Close enough. Amanda had to mentally force her feet to move from their place on the floor. She ran to the door and twisted the sign to read, Closed. Her dad, of course, would have visibly shuddered at the notion of closing early, but Amanda was eighteen now, and in charge. Monster, she whispered to the empty store. The word held some sort of power she couldn't explain or understand. Amanda felt a sudden chill from within, a feeling as though she had overlooked something important. It was the same icy ache that overcame her a few weeks ago when she had crawled into bed and suddenly remembered she had left her essay on British romanticism in the library printer. But this was worse. Amanda locked the deadbolt. Riley would just have to knock if he wanted back in. And he would be back. His phone and Velcro wallet were tucked under the register. She busied herself with the closing routine. She stuffed all the money from the register into a small canvas bag and initialed the log. She tidied the single checkout counter and placed the basket Mrs. Woodhouse had used back with the others. Silence followed her from aisle to aisle as she did a last check. There were no muffled voices coming from the city cafe next door. They closed at 8.30. And, Amanda was thankful to note, the funeral home that shared the western wall with Willoughby Grocery 
was characteristically quiet, too. She hoped Riley would knock soon. Mrs. Woodhouse's Victorian was only three blocks north. Amanda chided herself for being scared, for letting the old woman's words shake her. In less than a year, she would be away from Willoughby, studying literature at the main U. She would be in a dorm with a stranger. She might need to walk at night on unfamiliar streets. She would have to get tough. Yet, somehow, the familiar roads of Willoughby were more frightening. Somehow, she believed in monsters here. Her little town, her place, it had shadows. She knew this. Amanda waited. The clock thudded in rhythm. Why was that clock so damn loud? Amanda cupped her hands on either side of her face and pressed her nose to the front window. There were two dim street lamps revealing nothing but an empty street. There was no wind to push a styrofoam cup down the concrete. There was no drunk hiccuping while he straddled the curb. Main Street was an abandoned film set, a photograph. Lanky, awkward Riley did not appear. Amanda pressed her eyes closed and wished. She promised herself that, once he arrived, she would hug him and rub her face into his concave chest. Riley could read whatever he wanted to in her touch. She just wanted to be anchored, to be back in the world where she didn't actually believe Doris Woodhouse. She wanted him to make a stupid joke, and God, maybe even try to kiss her. That would remind her she was just a silly girl in a silly town, occupied by nothing scarier than Mr. DeWitt, the aggressively racist 90-year-old. The clock read 12 minutes past 10. He had left her. Riley had continued on home. She was sure of it now. He had a stick of deer jerky between his lips, and he was in his game chair, starting up his Xbox. Ass. Amanda steeled herself. She would have to walk alone tonight. She couldn't even text him. His phone was still secure inside the store. She grabbed the canvas bag of cash, her own phone, and the house keys from the drawer pushing them all into her small backpack. She chided herself for not biking to work that afternoon. She'd had the urge to walk instead, so now she had stranded herself with only her feet to carry her. Monsters aren't real, Amanda told Willoughby Grocery. Her body didn't believe her. Her stomach ached. Her mouth was dry. She unlocked the door, pushed it open, and then used the key to lock it from the outside in one fluid motion. Amanda walked into nothing. No one on Main. There were no car headlights cutting through the gloom. No couples on a walk, enjoying the mild fall night. This was Willoughby, her home. Yet Amanda couldn't shake her fear 
couldn't forget the word monster as it pounded in her head with the same predictable beat of the Coca-Cola clock. She passed the funeral home, and then the drugstore, and then she met with the curb where Maine intersected with Ash. She walked onto Ash Street's sidewalk into the darkness. All the houses were still and black. Everyone is asleep. Jesus, it's Friday night. Amanda noticed a blue flickering light from the Heinz's living room. Thank you, thank you. At least Dan Heinz watches the late news. She stopped. The Heinz's white bench swing rocked as though it were caught in a breeze. Amanda didn't feel anything in the air but the absence of wind. The monster, he was hiding behind that. You know that. Oh, oh shit. Amanda's legs were heavy. That familiar chill rattled her heart. And two, that overwhelming notion she had forgotten something vital rushed inside her mind. You're a big boy, Riley. You'll protect me. You're a big boy, Riley. You'll protect me. She pitched forward. Her dense feet seemingly encased in cement, wouldn't budge. Amanda spun her arms frantically, searching for an impossible rope or invisible life raft to save her from the night. Amanda begged her feet to move. The swing rocked noisily, moved by some alien force in the windless night. She had a sudden memory of Riley, much younger, with a smooth, craterless face, she had been alone in the t-ball field, her limbs frozen. She stood in an awkward dancer-like pose, her legs about to slide into splits. She waited for him to unfreeze her. Riley ran up to her side, breathing heavily from the game, and considered the best place to rest his small hand. He touched her on the nose with one finger, and she imagined herself like a magical toy from the Nutcracker, awakening into a new reality. She ran ahead of Riley into the open field. It had been the summer before fifth grade, and it had been undoubtedly their most epic game of freeze tag. Amanda wished Riley was there now to press her on the nose so she could unfreeze. Instead, she focused on the unnatural movement of the Heinz's swing. It moved with a jittery, unpredictable clatter that made Amanda think of something animal, something rustling beneath it. It wasn't an animal. Amanda knew this as well as she knew that there was no one on the streets of Willoughby to help her. She looked up Ash and saw the outline of Doris Woodhouse's imposing Victorian. Somehow, every window was black. Not just black, but each window was a void. Amanda pitched forward. Finally, her feet obeyed and came with the rest of her. She made her way up the sidewalk, keenly aware of the Heinz's swing. It had stopped creaking. She supposed the monster was finding a new hiding place, or perhaps he followed right behind her. And if she turned, 
he would be at her heels like a lost puppy. She laughed at the notion of him being in any way puppy-like. She knew what it looked like. Her mind's eye had his figure stored inside. She knew his snout and eyes were wolfish, yet he had no fur. His skin had a human texture, but was starkly white, mottled with brown veins. He could both stand and crawl with ease. Amanda didn't want to think of his mouth. She couldn't picture it. She was oddly relieved the image was not accessible. Reaching the edge of Mrs. Woodhouse's black, wrought-iron fence, Amanda stopped. She considered using the enormous, crow-shaped knocker on the front door and knocking until her hands bled. Just to ask a question. Just to see a human. But Amanda knew Mrs. Woodhouse would not answer her door. Amanda could knock until, well, until he wrapped her in his muscular front legs and began to chew. But Mrs. Woodhouse would sit in the darkness, because that is what they all did. Amanda knew this. So instead, she picked up the pace and walked on wobbly legs a few more blocks north to the last paved street of Willoughby. Amanda made a left. Although the darkness was overwhelmingly complete, she could make out the lines of her house. The windows were all black, as she knew they would be, but the sense of closeness was intoxicating to her. Soon, she would hug her mother. Soon, she would be in bed. Soon, she would forget. Amanda passed her neighbors, determined to make it to her front step. She kept her eyes on the family home, recognizing each corner and line. Unexpectedly, she made out the shape of something else. Something not right. It shifted in the darkness, moving with the same stilted uneasiness as the swing. Hello? Amanda swallowed down a sick rise of phlegm. Oh, oh no. He's not a fox or bear or anything like that. The creature sat on her front porch. He had been waiting for her on the top step. He rose as Amanda stopped at the end of the gravel driveway. She noted how the way he blinked his yellow eyes was oddly human. She recognized his hairless tail as it wrapped, like a snake, around his torso. Amanda dropped her backpack. It was now, in this moment, at the end of her drive, that it all came crashing into her. She knew this monster. She knew him as well as she knew all the residents of her tiny town. He was there. He was always there. He had been born in Willoughby, and, like most of the residents... He would stay there until he died. If he died. Amanda found no comfort in this new realization, and instead began to run back up the street into the blackness. He was behind her, of course, and she knew why. It was past ten, and she was alone, and she'd forgotten. Before she could devise a safe route, and was there really a safe place? 
place. Amanda found herself in the Olsen's yard. Just like every other house in Willoughby, the Olsen's was murky and quiet. She didn't bother screaming. Her throat was full of salty mucus, and her lips were pressed together in a line. The monster, though, his jaw was wide and noisy. He made guttural growls as he ran behind her. He sounded more annoyed than hungry. Amanda pulled herself over the Olsen's chain-link gate and fell onto the paver stones that wrapped around the house leading to the backyard. She followed the stones, vague rectangles in the night, much like Dorothy on her yellow bricks. She followed them like they would lead her to another reality, another town. Instead, they brought her to a small shed, inevitably stuffed with rusted tools, and also inevitably locked. The wolfish creature gained on her. He wasn't running, but he rather crawled on all fours. She looked over her shoulder and saw his glowing eyes just on the other side of the Olsen's backyard. He paced by the gate, watching her, breathing and drooling. Even on his knees, he was enormous. Had he always been so big? Amanda didn't know. She had never been this close to him, close enough to feel his angry heat. When she locked up Willoughby Grocery, Riley had always been there to walk her home. And how had he gotten home? She had never asked herself this before. He just always had, and she'd always forgotten. She was sure he forgot, too. Everyone in Willoughby did. She knew this now. She knew they all forgot. Amanda stared back at her stalker. She began to accept her fate. It was past ten, and she roamed Willoughby alone. That was just unacceptable. The thing with claws. He didn't have a name. Although Amanda thought at that moment, as she pressed her body against the side of the tool shed, that he should have a name, like all town mascots. She actually felt a strangled laugh push through her lips. The creature watched with his jaundiced eyes. He swayed upon his hind legs, and then actually sniffed the air, like Amanda's dachshund did, before he settled on a spot to squat. Amanda wanted to laugh again, but decided against it. She covered her mouth with a shaking hand, conscious of the monster's rage. He was going to eat her, and it was going to hurt. Amanda had that cold sensation, that one she got when she forgot something. She felt the cold, prickly pins in her arms, and frozen ice in her belly. Her book. She had forgotten it on the counter, next to the cough drops and gum. Well, it didn't matter now, did it? At least her book was safe. It wouldn't be chewed and swallowed like she was going to be. We're open till ten, Amanda told the monster. He shifted somehow, back and forth, insect-like. Amanda knew he could shift like that across the grass and kill her in less than a second. He could rip her with his teeth. No, 
No, they weren't teeth. Amanda remembered why she had forced the image of his mouth from her mind. His jaws crunched with needles, thousands of them. When he opened his mouth, the sharp barbs would shine in the moonlight. It would be like a smile before he shoved her down his ravenous throat. She knew that now, and she had known that before. But she had always forgotten. Amanda took a small step backward, and then another. He didn't move forward, but he shifted to the side. She swallowed more salty fear, hoping the vomit wouldn't come. If she stopped to spit, that would surely be the vulnerable moment he would take her. She couldn't think of that now. She wanted to think of Riley unfreezing her limbs, of her dad stocking shelves, of her mom reading Emily Dickinson poetry to her. Her last thoughts might as well be pleasant. Maybe that would make her taste bad. Maybe fear was delicious. Amanda dared another step backward. She was in total darkness. She regarded the moon, an unhelpful sliver. There were no porch lights illuminating her or the creature. Although she couldn't really see it, she knew there was a shovel. She sensed the presence of it next to her, behind her, really. It was propped against the shed. Mr. Olson had used it to dispatch a pesky groundhog that evening. She knew that, too. Her hands found the wooden handle. It was smooth. Amanda picked up the shovel and swung it in front of her with all the bravery she could muster. She thrust the implement up behind her shoulder, bringing it down to hit the ground again. The monster shifted. This time, he shifted right in front of her, inches, and she hit with her full force. The air pushed out of his jaw of needles, and he fell to his abdomen in the grass. Amanda raised the shovel and came down again. She couldn't untangle her sounds from his. They both panted and squeaked and growled. Amanda hit him again and again. She felt warm fluid on her face and arms. He lay beneath her, hurt but not dead. She could see only night. The wolfish thing gurgled below her, a pile of shadow, a lump of dirty clothes, an amorphous nothing. She dropped the shovel and ran from the Olsen's yard, leaping the gate in one clumsy jump. She ran to her driveway, covered in warmth but still cold in her stomach. She had to remember. She had to remember she could hurt him. He bled. He couldn't die, but he could be stopped. Temporarily immobilized. She could hurt him, and win, and go home. She had to remember to ask Riley if this is what he did each night, if he used a shovel or a gun or a hammer or an axe. She had to ask Doris Woodhouse what she knew about the monster, if she remembered. She had to remember. Amanda's leg burned. She had hit her own shin with the shovel, and her own blood spilled onto her sneaker. Maybe that would help. The stitches and the pain, maybe they would help her remember. 
She just had to remember. Amanda's dachshund, Toby, greeted her at the door. He twisted his long body in excitement and worry. Dim light shone from her parents' bedroom. Amanda pulled herself over the threshold and fell into the front hall. Toby licked her injured leg, trying his best to clean her up. She kissed his head, thankful for his kindness. She was safe. She felt it instantly. She got up and hobbled to the light at the end of the carpeted hall. Hey, Mom. Amanda poked her head into the bedroom. I'm home. Amanda's mother looked up from her book. Her husband slept beside her. Did Riley walk you home? It's so late. She couldn't see blood. Amanda nodded. Yeah, Mom. He always does. She didn't lie. Amanda knew Riley must have walked beside her, his signature bottle of pop in hand. She looked down at her wound. It was just a scratch. She would look for a bandage in the bathroom. What's wrong? Amanda's mom raised her head from the pile of pillows and watched her daughter. Amanda looked pale. Nothing. I just... I just forgot something. Amanda sensed the familiar ice in her veins. Hmm? What? It came to Amanda then, what she had forgotten. Damn, my book. I was going to finish it. Oh, it's not that easy to leave the Wicked Library. There's still an interview with the author. But first, this. Today, we'd like to encourage you to check out another audio drama from one of our good friends, Paul Sading. He creates an audio drama by the name of Subject Found. It's in its second season now. The first season dealt with Bigfoot and the main character, Jared Strong, chasing a demon that had been haunting him since his childhood. Season two, available now, is the story of Janice Herring and her pursuit of the most vicious killer Memphis, Tennessee has ever known. If you enjoy podcasts like this one, our other podcasts, The Lift, and shows like Lore and Myths and Legends, you will be entranced by Subject Found. It's available wherever you find your podcasts or by going to www.paulsading.com under the podcast tab. Remember, all that is lost must be found. And now a little teaser from Subject Found Season 2.
So today my guest is Meg Halfdahl, and we have just listened to your story, Willoughby, which, uh, as we've discussed, you and I offline, that uh, this is not just one story. There's actually a lot more to it. It's part of a collection, and uh, there's a novel coming out, or by the time this airs, it may already be out. Uh, So tell me a little bit about how this expanded and, and what made this an important story for you, one that you wanted to, you know, to tell, because we all know it's a lot of work to write and bring a story to life and especially to take it from just one instance to being this bigger thing. It, it had to be something that was important to you. So what made that a story that was important to get out there into the world? Sure. Well, you know, when I, I originally wrote this story, Willoughby, I had no idea I was going to expand it. But um, really over time, it sort of has taken over my creative life in a very good way. Um, I really, there were some elements I really wanted to bring about. Um, first, I'm, I'm a big Twilight Zone fan, and I really like this sort of idea of kind of um, doing that sort of, you know, twist ending to kind of be like, whoa. And so I, I definitely wanted to accomplish that with this uh, story. And then I really, um, in college, I got really interested in the sort of idea of rural Gothic. Um, I'm a big city girl, and I had experienced sort of what it was like to go to a small town as an outsider. And I don't know, it really fascinated me, um, the way small towns function. Um, so those were kind of two things. And then the third thing was just sort of that psychological horror of not being able to trust yourself, um, of forgetting um, your mind really not being your own. Um, and really all of that sort of came about when creating this story. And then as time went on, um, I just felt like there was so much more to say about Willoughby. Yeah, it's very cool because, you know, small towns have this this undercurrent to them, I think, because, the, you know, it's not necessarily like a shared unconscious per se, or maybe it is. Um, who knows, right? But there does seem to be an undercurrent to things and everybody knows each other. I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, the, the same families living in a town for so long that there's almost like this shorthand. It's just like when, you know, people get to know each other and become friends, you have this subtext with things. And when you're an outsider, it can feel a little weird that there's things going on, these these kind of uh, the, the shared knowledge that you're not a part of. So to take that to the level where, you know, everything appears nice on the surface, but underneath there's this dark undercurrent, I think is really compelling. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I, I really, I I don't know. There's something about small towns. Um, I idealize them. I sort of see how um, innocent they seem and how life seems like it's slower. And, you know, um, but at, at the end of the day, it's just as complicated, if not more, than, you know, the big city. And that there are these secrets um, underneath it all. And that's something I really wanted to explore is like this, town is sort of sharing the secret and um it's something an outsider may not even notice or understand but um yeah it's just something that again as as a big city person i found interesting about rural america yeah it's very cool and you mentioned the twilight zone which i'm a big fan of as well so you know there's always this this creepy unspoken uh high strangeness that occurs in those tales and i think that you know, I'm sure that it continues on, but at least in this first story that everybody's 
getting introduced to the to the town through uh, that definitely comes through. Oh yeah, thank you. Yeah, I um, actually, and some people have noticed I did actually steal the name Willoughby from an episode of Twilight Zone. So yeah. I, I definitely uh, did that. But yeah, I um, I'm a big fan. So um, there's just something about the eeriness, but also sort of taking you through the story with somebody that we can relate to, which was important to me too. Yeah, absolutely. So what was the biggest struggle for you, at least first in writing the story and then later on adapting it to this larger universe? Well, um, this was my first published short story, so it definitely had some structural problems. Um, Once I sent it into a publisher and they sent it back, and of course it had lots of red marks on it, um, but they said, you know, we really like the story, it just needs some work. And one of the things was that um, they felt I hadn't shown enough of the monster And I had been very subtle on my first draft. So that was something um, in subsequent drafts that I um, really worked upon was having that monster be um, really more present and and really describing it and using the descriptive language. Um, You know, that's that's a, a balancing act. We in horror are always sort of walking is how much do we show? How much do we reveal? Do we sort of um, leave it intriguing or do we really describe? And so um, I think with help, I was able to really get that monster um, sort of there and scary. So I think that helped. But yeah, um, um, as far as bringing it sort of out into expanding the characters in the town, that's been fun. Um, I've got a short story collection all taking place in Willoughby and then my novel that's coming out this month, um, which will be the first of three, all take place in Willoughby. And it's been really fun to create um, the backstories and sort of connect families to each other and events. Um, But it also can be uh, quite a huge task that involves a lot of um, (laughs) plotting out and uh, writing down and being cognizant um, that I don't, um, you know, make mistakes in in plots that happened 50 years ago, 100 years ago, and Mm -hmm. making sure that um, the story all checks out. So that can be very challenging, but also very fun. Yeah, continuity is always um, something that we need to be cognizant of when we write things in in a in one particular universe, you know, mm-hmm. uh, when we're writing from story to story, or you know, you're writing a novel here and then a novel there. It's uh, I think it's easier almost because you don't have to worry about the continuity, and you don't have to worry about contradicting yourself. Now. You know, sometimes you have characters that are that are relating something and you get that unreliable narrator type of thing, which is always fun. But, yeah, I mean, the the overall making your universe consistent is so important to keeping the you know listener, the reader enthralled and keeping them coming back. Yeah, I mean, you don't you don't want um, a reader to be like, hey, you know, I feel kind of disrespected here because I know for a fact this happened then and that didn't happen then. And so you want them to be able to sort of smile to themselves and say, oh, yeah, I remember when that happened, and it'd be all correct. Yeah, it's always fun when there's something that's just, you know, kind of building and it gets mentioned here and there, and the uh, the attentive reader picks up on it. It's almost like a, a present whenever, you know, yes. two two stories in or, or five stories yes. later or maybe a novel later, you're like, oh, this finally came to fruition, what I've been, yeah. you know, watching and suspecting all along, and that's kind of fun. Yes, I love it. I know as a reader, I love it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So how many drafts did this first story take for you? I, I mean, I know that there's a lot of work that goes into polishing a story. 
and it being you said your first uh, real story that you were trying to get published. How how long did it take you to kind of get it to the point where you felt comfortable with it? Um, you know, I think this one because it was really my first um, published story. It took about three to four drafts. Mm-hmm. Um, normally now with short stories, I can usually get away with a, a two. Um, but this one took, yeah, a little bit more. So what came first for you in the story, the characters or the setting, or, I mean, I hate to ask the question, like what inspired the story? Because, Hey, there's so many things I know from, you know, writing my own stuff that it, these ideas just sometimes come to you and it's, you know, a bit of this and a bit of that. And it just kind of coalesces. But, um, usually I find that when I'm sitting down to write something, it's, usually like an idea for a story or it's, you know, a character starts talking to me. Um, I don't know which is more fun. I think maybe it's more fun when the character starts talking to you, but um, what was it for you with this one? You know, nine times out of 10, I would say that um, I always start with the character. That's really important to me, Mm -hmm. but I would say um, for this story, it was definitely the setting. Um, I really wanted to have Willoughby be like its own character. Yeah. So, um, I started there, and then um, actually I really started to have Doris, um, the old woman, sort of came into my mind first. Yeah, she's delightful. And, oh, thank you. She's actually, she plays a very big role uh, in the novel series. We get to see her younger and stuff. Oh, so very cool. Um, but yeah, and then and then Amanda came because she was, you know, our sort of gateway into the story. But mm-hmm. uh, like I said, normally I start, I definitely start with, story i mean with character but uh but this time i'd say setting well that's very cool no it's it's and and, you know it's fun because like you said willoughby is kind of like its own character so uh you know it when you have a setting like that that wants to talk and wants to be something and you have those interesting characters like doris that you know obviously she's very tied into the history of the town she's been there for a long time you know there's probably things that she knows that she doesn't talk about so you know, it's it's always intriguing whenever you have somebody like that on stage that you want to get deeper into and you want to know more about. And, you know, even in this short story, she comes across as someone that um, I was very happy when you said, you know, there's a collection out there and there's a novel out there that we're going to be able to get to know her better. Yeah, I mean, I think, unfortunately, um, just societally, I think sometimes we ignore the fact that our elders have so many great stories and um and Doris is an example of someone who she knows, you know, way more about what's going on than than Amanda does in this story. Yeah. And so it's been really fun to to go back and explore her her sort of story through Willoughby. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. And it's it's sad that um, that is the way things are now, because, you know, I remember I mean, that's where I fell in love with story in general was, you know, my grandmother telling me stories about growing up on the farm and you know, the things that would happen. And there were, there were certain stories that she would tell over and over again at my insistence, um, probably to the point of, of driving her crazy, but you know, (laughs) she was just such a great natural storyteller. It's, it's really where I fell in love with it. So yeah, that's, that's a great point. Mm -hmm. So what surprised you most about writing this story? Um, was it the fact that there was so much more there to get into, or were there other things that came up that, really surprised you and kept you interested in in going back to the well? Well, I am the sort of writer where I don't do a lot of um, outlining or planning. So 
every story I write is a surprise to me um, because I really try to just let it go where it's going to go. I knew I um, liked you. That's that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's the way I am too. And, and there's so many yeah. people that don't, uh, I mean, I'm not that there's anything wrong with it. I've always said there, there are many ways to get to the crux of a story. And um, there's so many people that outline, but I, I think that the thing that I struggle with sometimes is um, at least whenever I was starting to learn to write was this idea that you had to outline. Um, and then I realized, you know what? There are pantsers out there. It, it, there are mm-hmm. times when you want to dust things off and find the story rather than try to build it. And uh, I'm always mm-hmm. excited when somebody else is not an outliner. Yes. So I'm sorry for interrupting. Go ahead. No, no. I, I feel the same way when I find somebody else who, who writes that way, too, because I think we all we feel like this private shame. Like, yeah, actually, <laughs> I don't outline. Um, I just sort of let it happen. And, right. you know, maybe... Maybe in the end, I might write a little bit slower than those people because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I stop a lot to sort of like daydream and stuff like that. But that's how my best stories have been written. Um, I, I so, yeah, every everything's a surprise to me. I, I don't start a story like knowing what the ending is going to be, knowing really too much. Um, and that's what keeps it fun for me and why I love this job is because I get to sit and daydream and, yeah. and write down what I think. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so is is that what attracts you to writing horror and specula- speculative fiction? Is that there uh, is a little bit more of that, or is there something else that brings you to that genre? You know, since I was tiny, I loved anything dark, horror, scary. Um, but I grew up uh, sort of really wanting to be a literary fiction writer. Mm-hmm. I studied literature, and I just came to this, point in my life where I was like, you know, I really love consuming horror. Why am I not writing it? And um, once I accepted that and and said, okay, I, you know, this is what who I am. This is what I want to be. Everything clicked into place. And something I love about it is the conflict that you give your character in in a horror story is so much more. um, It just transcends any other conflict. You know, it, it takes your character and you get to explore what they're going through in their life in this completely just, I mean, whacked out way. I mean, like in a story with a monster or they forget everything or, you know, whatever it may be, um, we get to really just drop them in and watch them either sink or swim. And I, horror just makes me happy. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I think that's truly valid and I don't want to dis literary fiction or other other genres of course but for me you know there's if you look at our original society or, or you look at our society's original form of storytelling and there's a lot of folk and fairy tales and you, you look back to that i'm always drawn to how much horror is is in those original forms of fiction now we're not talking the disney versions that have been sanitized <laughs> and cleaned up but if you look right. back to these you know, original tales that people used to tell each other. There's a lot of cautionary tales. Um, there's definitely a lot of monsters and conflicts. And, you know, it's it's what's going on out in the world that uh, we're not really sure we understand, but we know is there, so it terrifies us. And, you know, I think that there's, I think it's innate to us. I think that's why, if we're honest with ourselves, we're all kind of drawn to horror and that type of storytelling. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's all something we kind of share. I mean, we're all so different, every human being, but we're all scared of something and we're, we all are going to die and we're all yeah. scared about that, you know. 
So, um, yeah. And, and I'm always, it's always funny and surprising to me when I meet people who are like, oh God, you know, I would never read anything scary or watch anything scary. Cause it's so counterintuitive to what I think and how I function. So I'm always like, really? Oh, okay. <laughs> they still make you. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So what routines, you know, cause we have a lot of folks that listen who are other writers or aspiring writers. We get tons of stories submitted. Uh, from people that would love to be on the show and we do our best to get as many of them on as we can but obviously we have to pick and choose but I always like uh, the interviews to be kind of a point where you know folks that have had some success in the industry and you know whose stories we have on the show we kind of like to talk and pick your brain a little bit about what works for you and and what gets you in the right mood so are there any rituals or or things that you go through to get yourself in the right mindset to sit down and write well um i i enjoy silence i have two small children so that's a rare (laughs) thing but i i really anytime i have silence i try to use that time for writing but you know i think my biggest um advice um something that i really struggled with uh, when i was younger was I would write something and I would delete it and I would write it and then I would delete it. And I never got anywhere because I was always trying to form that perfect sentence and it never happened because there's no such thing. <laughs> so um, my advice to anybody listening who's interested in writing is save everything you write. Um, don't go back and read everything, you know, that minute. Just just to sort of let, allow yourself to sort of work in a stream of consciousness and you'll be really surprised at um what may come out of it. So don't become a perfectionist. Um, accept what you're writing and um, just be happy that you're moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's great advice. Now, do you do you write longhand or do you do you write at a computer or what works best for you, do you feel? Um, I like to work on a computer. I've actually just started trying dictation, which has been kind of interesting. Um, <laughs> it can be. <laughs> um, you know, then you you go back and you see all this stuff that you know it didn't it didn't write right how right. you were saying but um but yeah no I I really I like typing I guess I'm I mean I can't imagine writing longhand I feel like my hand would cramp constantly so <laughs> typing yeah I'm the same way I I try longhand I I still play with it a little bit but for me it's almost I can't write as fast as I can type and sometimes it feels like I'm losing things because I can't get them down quickly enough. So um, everybody's mind works differently, but yeah, that's, that's what works for me too. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a, a book or a story that you can remember that changed the way you looked at the world or, or your place in the world? Because I think, you know, stories can do that for us. They can really transform us. Oh, definitely. Um, when I was 15, I read Rebecca by Daphne Moray. Oh yeah. And, it was for me the first time I really felt like uh, I could relate to a character that was in a gothic sort of suspenseful setting. Um, and her command of setting in that um, book is absolutely, I mean, it's, it's something I'll never achieve, but I certainly try. And, and that really transported me and took me to sort of this gothic place. And the character, um, I just, I could relate to her as a 15-year-old, you know, she wasn't much older than me, and sort of, she was just scared about life in general, um, which I think we all are mm-hmm. at that age. And, and so I was just, I don't know, I was really transfixed by that book, and I think it very much led me to the work that I do today. 
Yeah, I could definitely say I see an influence there. You know, the, the, now that you mention it, so yeah, that's that's great. Um, what does a, what does a good story do to have to scare you? I mean, we we talk a lot about scaring others, and we all have shared fears and that sort of thing. But do, do you remember something in your life, a, a story or a movie, or you know, even a piece of audio drama or something that you listen to where it creeped you out or or, or got you scared, or maybe you had to turn the lights on? <laughs> Well, I mean, I definitely, there's definitely been those events in my life, but I think something that really affected me was a short story that a lot of us um, read in college or high school called The Yellow Wallpaper. Okay. Um, and at the very end of that story, is it completely scared me. It unnerved me so much. Um, it, it was very psychological, um, basically about this woman, sort of her brain just unhinging. And that's what's always scared me is, again, and this is, you know, what I did, tried to do with Willoughby is that idea of not being able to trust yourself. Um, I'm a big fan, too, of like The Shining, the novel, and also the Kubrick movie, because I love the idea of not being able to trust your family and someone close to you. I think that's scarier than anything. Yeah, absolutely. To see that dark influence take him over and just lose his mind. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I think that's something that that's really cool about the short story we just listened to is that there is that psychological aspect to it. Absolutely. That goes through the entire piece. And you also have the monster in there that, uh, you know, so you kind of are serving both, both, uh, desires that people might have, you know, for a good monster. Um, and, and just that underlying sense of creeping dread, uh, combined with the, the psychological thing, whenever you get to the end of the story, and you realize that Amanda is just like everybody else. She knew what was going on when she was out in the world. But as soon as she's home, she's like, I don't, I don't remember what was, I, oh, it was my book. That must be what it was. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, yes, I try to, I try to, you know, please everyone. So monster and psychological <laughs> together. <laughs> you know, and I like that too, because it's something that we, I think we all do, you know, like whenever we, um, I don't know about you, but I mean, like I've been camping by myself, you know, with nobody else around and it's really dark and really quiet and something right. snaps in the woods and you're like, your mind just goes crazy. And and I think that, you know, oh, yeah. writers are probably more like that than most people because <laughs> yeah. we teach ourselves to let our imagination misbehave. So, mm-hmm. you know, in the middle of, you know, 1 a.m. in the morning out in the middle of the woods when something goes bump, um, your oh, mind yeah. just goes wild. Um, and we try oh. to justify, oh, it was just this. But, you know. There's that part of you that's always like, no, it's not. It's actually, you know, the monster coming for me. So, oh, definitely, yeah. I think you're right. I think I think those active imaginations can get us in trouble sometimes. <laughs> Very much so. So you mentioned that there's a collection out there. Tell me a little bit about the collection and where folks can get that. Sure. So my very first um, short story collection called Twisted Reveries um, has uh, the story Willoughby in it and also a story called Moira Kettlesberg, which takes place in Willoughby about the town librarian. Um, And then my second short story collection, um, Twisted Reveries, Tales from Willoughby, um, really goes back into the history. And it's 13 separate stories about people um, living in Willoughby and sort of their separate um, experiences. Um, And then my first novel, um, which is on pre-order right now and will be out um, March 17th and um, March 30th for the print um, version, Um, that's called Her Dark Inheritance. And it is about an outsider um, finding out that she has um, 
a backstory. Her she didn't realize that her family's from Willoughby and that her mother was accused of an axe murder there. Wow. And so she goes back to find out what's going on, and um, she bumps into Do- our Doris from this story, and awesome. she meets some interesting people. So those are all available on Amazon. Um, so you can search my name. Excellent. Well, that's great because you know I'm I'm sure that people are going to be compelled and want more. Uh, after listening to today's story. So hopefully maybe we'll adapt another one for you in the future. Oh, I'd love that. That'd be awesome. Yeah. You guys do such an amazing job. It's so cool to hear my stories come to life through Wicked Library. I love it. Well, thank you. I'm glad we can do that for you. And I should mention that, you know, folks that are fans of this show probably have heard me talk about The Lift. And I think that we have a good number of people that listen to the Wicked Library that also listen to The Lift. And you'll be having uh, a story come out on the lift this season as well. I'm so excited for that. That was my dream job. I mean, because the lift to me is the modern day Twilight Zone. So being able to write an episode of that was a highlight of my life. So Aww, thank you. Well, thank you. <laughs> that means a lot to have, have you say that. So thanks so much. But yeah, that will be coming out this season. Um, we're excited about it. You know, we, we actually... Uh, aren't doing quite as many episodes this season. So I think it'll be even more special that we have, you know, a story every month that uh, is well written by someone who really understands, you know, the Twilight Zone history and uh, just that type of horror, because obviously it's a little bit different than some of the other things we do on the show um, here for the Wicked Library. But it's, uh, you know, all in the same genre. It's all fun. Um, and, and it was a great pleasure for us to adapt your story. So I'm really glad we had an opportunity to do that. Thank you so much. You're welcome. So where else can your fans find you? I'm sure you have fans now. If, if you didn't have, you know, these maybe new fans that just discovered you today, where can right. they find you and where can they interact with you? Sure. So, um, they can go to meghoffdahl.com. Um, also I'm at meghoffdahl at, um, on Twitter, Instagram, um, Facebook, I'm Meg Hofdahl, horror author. I'm basically everywhere. So yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm haunting everyone's dreams. You can find me anywhere. <laughs> so, um, and I would love tweet me, um, find me on Facebook, message me. You can message me through, um, my, uh, website, but yeah, I love to hear from people. Excellent. And I should mention that if folks didn't hear it, they should go back. If we have new listeners to the show, which we're always getting new listeners, uh, they should go back and listen to last season of the Wicked Library because we did uh, a short story of yours as part of an anthology, The Pit. Yes. Yeah, that was excellent. Um, I loved hearing that. And um, I've had so many great people have messaged me saying they listened to it and how much they loved it. So, um, yeah, it's The Pit. One, I, I was so happy with it. <laughs> well, you know, it's it, it's um, when we do the anthologies, we don't do any author interviews. So. I guess I'll take a moment now and just, you know, ask you if there's anything that you wanted to share about uh, that story and how it came about and what it meant to you. Sure. Well, um, after Willoughby was published, um, I went to a sort of industry party and this other publisher came up to me and they said, you know, I really liked Willoughby. Would you write a story for my anthology? And I was like, "Uh, yeah. So I ran home and I was like, okay, and they said the only element that we need um, for this to be published in our anthology is it has to have some sort of criminal um, aspect to it. So I really, um, I was sort of inspired by, um, my husband uh, is from very a very small town in northern Minnesota, and we used to go swimming in um, mine pits 
that they had flooded um, that were no longer being used. And so I, I sort of just took inspiration from that um, and sort of, I don't know, kind of made another sort of monster. And um, that story came together. And I'm really proud of that story. I think um, it's, it's certainly one that people seem to really respond to. So yeah, it's a great story. And like I said, if, if people haven't listened to it, they should definitely go back and, and do that. Because I knew from the first sentence that you, you talked <laughs> earlier about not having a perfect sentence, but I knew from the very first sentence, I was like, as soon as I read the first sentence, I was like, oh, okay, we're doing this story. Unless oh, it goes okay. terribly <laughs> downhill from here, yeah. I'm totally in. Um, and, and that first sentence, if, if people would like to hear it, is the first time I committed murder, I was six years old. Oh, yes. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. And I was just like, that's that's fantastic. It's so dark. It's so terrible. I love it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. For two like minds. <laughs> that's right. So, so yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to spend some time talking to us. And uh, we'll definitely look to have you back on the show again in the future. Oh, thank you. I can't wait. I'm, I'm just, I love having my stories in your guys' hands. Um, I, I'm, it's an honor. So thank you so much, Dan. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Wicked Library. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production, ninthstory.com. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. You can be a part of helping keep the shows coming for as little as $2 a month. All supporters get wicked fun rewards like bookmarks, access to our archives, bonus stories, and more. The more generous you are, the more wicked the rewards are. And of course, those supporting the show at $10 a month and above will get access to our new show, The Private Collector, set in the world of the Wicked Library and exploring what the librarian does when he's not introducing the show. Complete credits and full show notes, including links and information from today's episode, can be found on thewickedlibrary.com. You can also find links to our Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes page. Until next time, go ahead, leave the lights on. It makes it easier for Willoughby's monster to see you.